You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. In January 1959, 10 young hikers set off on a trek to the peak of Otorten, a mountain in the northern Urals in Soviet Russia. Two weeks later, all but one, who had dropped out of the trip last minute due to sickness, were mysteriously found dead. The state in which their bodies were found, both gruesome and bizarre, severely underdressed without shoes or boots, up to thousands of feet away from their campsite, and with strange injuries all over their mangled bodies, has kept the case fascinating for fans of the unexplained throughout the last 60 years. And though the case of what's since become known as the Dyatlov Pass incident was reopened by the Russian government in February 2019, it remains unsolved. You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher, All That's Interesting, where we explore all things weird and bizarre in the natural world and the world past. I'm All That's Interesting's assistant editor, Leah Silverman, and today I'm joined by two other members of the ATI team, managing editor John Karofsky and our staff writer, Natasha Easthawk. Hello. Hi. Today we'll be discussing the Dyatlov Pass incident and the inconclusive investigation that allowed a number of outlandish theories to flourish. We'll hear from Mark Fenster, a law professor at the Levin College of Law at the University of Florida, to discuss how conspiracy theories like those surrounding the Dyatlov Pass incident are created and how they have become part of the mainstream consciousness. And as we ourselves discovered, the curious circumstances of the Dyatlov Pass incident continue to inspire countless theories in those who choose to investigate the final moments of the nine young hikers fated to die on that cold Soviet mountainside. February 26th, and it's been a month since the hikers first set off on their trip. It's the height of Cold War paranoia and the dead of winter in the remote reaches of Soviet Russia. The search party has been scouring the deep snows of the Urals for days when they finally come upon a campsite. Immediately, things get bizarre. According to Mikhail Sherevin, the young man who finds the tent, quote, the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty, and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind, close quote. Stranger still, it appears as though the tent had been cut open from the inside. It quickly starts to look like the hikers were so desperate to escape their own tent that they cut their way out. And when they did get out, they fled without shoes, socks, or much clothing, again in the dead of the Russian winter with temperatures as low as 20 below zero. Once fleeing the campsite, the hikers also fanned out in different directions as if in a state of panic meaning the investigators don't turn up all the bodies at once, but instead find them scattered thousands of feet apart. The investigators follow the footprints through the snow for a third of a mile before coming upon the remains of a fire under a large tree, 
where they find the first two bodies. These were the bodies of 21-year-old Yuri Dereshenka and 23-year-old Yuri Krivonyshenka. Dereshenka was a fourth-year student of radio engineering at the Ural Polytechnical Institute and is described as having an impulsive personality. At one point, he was also involved in a relationship with fellow hiker Zina Kolmogrova, but the two kept a good relationship. Kravanashenka studied construction and hydraulics at UPI. He graduated in 1957. He was working in Chelyabinsk, a secret nuclear facility, when it experienced a radioactive contamination accident known as the Kaishtem disaster. It is the third worst nuclear disaster on record right after Fukushima and Chernobyl. They say Kravanashenka was the in-house joker who was always playing the mandolin, later found at a storage shed where the group left their provisions. Neither Durashenka nor Kravanashenka are wearing shoes or any clothes except their underwear. Doroshenka, described as, quote, brown-purple, close quote, in complexion upon discovery, is wearing two different sets of socks, one of which was burned. There are abrasions all over his body, and his face is covered in blood. But more troubling is the gray foam covering his right cheek and the gray liquid coming from his mouth. Official cause of death? Hypothermia. Then there is Yuri Kravanashenka. Also bruised and scraped all over his body, the tip of his nose is missing, and some of the skin from his own right hand is found in his teeth. Official cause of death? Hypothermia. Both of their hands are scraped to the point that large portions of the skin are detached, and the branches on the tree are broken up to some 15 feet above the ground. According to search party official Captain Alexei Chernyshov, quote, all the low branches of the cedar within arm's reach were broken completely. One was cut four or five meters high. They were thick. These types of branches are extremely difficult to break, even if, for instance, you hang on them with the whole weight of your body, close quote. It's suspected that the two Yuris had attempted to climb the tree and that Durashenka had even bitten into his own hand to keep it lively and stave off frostbite so that he could keep climbing. But why the two freezing men were so desperate to climb the tree and stay in it and what they were perhaps trying to see, or who or what they were perhaps trying to escape, remained a mystery. And the mystery overall only deepened when the search party eventually finds the next set of bodies. Entry from Igor Dyatlov's diary, dated January 31st. Tired and exhausted, we started the preparations for the night. Not enough firewood. Too tired to dig a fire pit. We had supper right in the tent. It's warm. A piercing wind, hundreds of kilometers away from human settlements. On the same day that the two Yuris are found, about a thousand feet away lies the body of Igor Dyatlov. The 23-year-old radio engineering student at UPI was the leader who assembled the group of nine, most of whom were fellow students and peers of his at the university. He is found on his back with his head facing toward the tent. His hands are clenched and held close to his body, suggesting he died freezing. His autopsy report shows that he did indeed die of hypothermia. Better dressed than the other two, he has on a sweater and is wearing his friend's vest and ski pants. Curiously, he's not wearing shoes, but he is wearing one sock. His face, arms, and legs are all covered with small cuts and bruises on the backs of his knuckles, as though he'd been in a fist fight. Nearly twice the distance from the cedar than Dyatlov lies Zina Kolmogrova. Kolmogrova, 22, was an experienced hiker, very outgoing, and energetic. People who knew her said that she was, quote, the engine of the university. She was always full of ideas, 
and was liked by all. Though face down, her head is also directed toward the tent. She has on even more clothes than the three boys. Some of her sweaters are inside out, but she has no shoes on either. A little bit of money and a military-style face mask are found in her pockets. Her face and abdomen are also minorly bruised and scraped. She has similar injuries to her knuckles as Dyatlov. Most curiously, she has a nasty baton-shaped bruise on her side. Her death is ruled hypothermia due to violent accident. What exactly is meant by violent accident is anyone's guess. A few days later, on March 5th, the body of 23-year-old Rustam Slobodin is found between Dyatlov and Kolmogorova. A man of few words, Slobodin graduated from UPI in 1958. He was a long-distance runner, an athlete. Like Kravanashenka, Slobodin played a mandolin which he often took during long hiking trips. Like Mulgrova, he is face down, and like the others, his head is bent toward the tent. He has on more clothes than any of the other hikers thus far, including one shoe, and he has his passport, some money, and a penknife in his pockets. His watch is stopped at 8.45 a.m. Now Slobodin's face is badly bruised, and he is clearly more beat up than the others. He's had a nosebleed, his mouth is swelled, and his skull is cracked. The autopsy report reckons that the crack in his skull is likely due to blunt force trauma, perhaps from a baton, like the one that seemingly left a nasty mark on Kamal Grova's side. The report also speculates that his head injuries are consistent with a person falling and hitting their head over and over again while walking downhill. He ultimately died from hypothermia. From the strange way each of the hikers were dressed, it's clear they were taking clothes from one another as they fled down mountain, for whatever reason, as they succumbed one by one. Stranger still, the bodies of Durashenka, Kamalgrova, and Slobodin all appear to have been tampered with after their death. Entry from an unidentified diary, dated January 30th. Today, as yesterday, we are following the path of Mansi. Sometimes Mansi writings appear on trees. In general, all sorts of obscure, mysterious characters. There is a slogan for our campaign, in a country of mysterious signs. Those first five bodies were all found within about a week of the initial discovery of the campsite, but a full two months then passed with the fate of the remaining hikers lost in the snows of the harsh Russian winter. Finally, it's May 4th and a local Mansi tribesman and his dog are out for a walk when they happen upon a smattering of clothes that had been cut up by a knife. When investigators arrive on the scene, they find a knife sheath, but in a piece of the mystery that's never been solved, no knife. Regardless, investigators start digging and only the next day, after working their way through snow so deep that not even an avalanche probe had shown anything beneath the surface in prior searches, they find a body. This body and the next few uncovered were found in an area that's since become known as the Dyatlov Pass Den, a small cave-like area deeper into the forest from where any bodies have yet been found. The discovery of the den would open up a new, more mysterious chapter of the investigation. The first strange thing is that the bodies are found a few feet away from the den, not huddled inside or closer to it. The second strange thing is that the bodies have significant damage to their bones, as if they had been crushed by a force so immense that doctors later compared it to that of being hit by a car. The bodies in the den belong to Yudmila Dubinina, Alexander Kolivatov, 
Nikolai Thibault-Brignol, and Simeon Zoletaryov. Alexander Kolevatov's body is found in an eerie embrace with Simeon Zoletaryov. Kolevatov was a fourth-year student of nuclear physics at UPI. He grew up in a gulag in Tavda, which is in the Urals, and his father was an administrator at the prison there. He also worked at a secret state physics lab in Moscow when he was 19. Zolotaryov was a World War II veteran and the oldest of the group by a decade. He was also the most mysterious. He asked, for unknown reasons, to be called Sasha, which is a nickname for Alexander, but his real name was Semyon. Diary entry from Yudmila Dubinina, dated January 23rd. At first, nobody wanted this Zolotaryov, for he is a stranger. But then we all agreed, because you can't refuse. Kolivatov has a small open wound behind his ear and his neck is deformed. His body is well covered in layers of clothing, but he is missing a hat and shoes. His feet are covered in wool socks, which look like they were burnt. Weirdly, his jacket is unbuttoned and unzipped. During the autopsy, they find a few items in his pockets, including a key, safety pin, blank paper, and two packets of painkillers. The waistband of his sweater and the lower parts of his trousers were later found to be radioactive. Semyon Zolotaryov's body, which is locked in an embrace with Kolivatov, is found with two hats, a scarf, a long sleeve shirt, black sweater, and a coat, with two upper buttons unbuttoned. He has an open wound on the right side of his skull with exposed bone, and his eyeballs are missing. There's a camera around his neck which some say surprised Yuriyudin, the surviving student, because he thought the group only had four cameras with them. It's unclear where this camera came from, and the photos from it could not be recovered. Yuriyudin, by the way, left on January 28, six days before the group died, because he was experiencing sciatica. He died April 27, 2013. The body of Nikolai Thibault-Brignol is found nearby. Thibault-Brignol was an energetic and friendly student who graduated UPI in 1958 with a major in civil engineering. At the time of his death, he was working in construction. He has woolen gloves, three coins, a comb, and several pieces of paper inside his pocket when he is found. He also has two watches on his left arm. One is stopped at 8.14 and the other at 8.39. His skull is fractured and according to the autopsy report, the fracture was, quote, the result of a great force with the subsequent falling, hurling, and concussion. The autopsy report ends with, quote, the death of Thibault Brignol was a result of violence. Nearby, Yudmila Dubinina is found in a strange position, down on her knees with her face and chest pressed against the side of a ravine wall. Among the nine corpses found, Dubinina is by far in the worst state. Dubinina is the youngest in the Dyatlov group. Her diary showed that she was unnerved in the days before her death. On the 26th, she wrote, Mood is bad and probably will be for two more days. Evil as hell. She has numerous rib fractures on both sides of her chest. Like Zolotaryov, her eyeballs are missing. Additionally, her tongue is missing and her left cheekbone is partially exposed. The autopsy report is vague, only saying that her tongue is missing, but not what might have caused it. She is wearing a short sleeve shirt, long sleeve shirt, two sweaters, underwear, long socks, and two pairs of pants, one of which is badly burned and ripped. One of her sweaters belonged to Krivonoshenka, one of the two found beneath the cedar. And like Kolivatov, her sweater later tested to be radioactive. So, to recap, 
Durashenka and Kravanashenka were found under the cedar tree on February 26th. Nearby, Dyatlov and Kolmogorova were found on the same day. On March 5th, Slobodin was found, and the last students, Dubinina, Kolevatov, Thibaut Brignol, and Zolotaryov, were found on May 5th. But although the bodies were now all accounted for, an endless series of questions still remained. Why were their clothes radioactive? What force comparable to that of a car overwhelmed them? Why were some of them missing their eyes? Why were there cut marks in the tent? And why were the Yuri so disinclined to return? Why were they so sad that they'd rather climb up a tree? What could have forced nine experienced hikers away from their campsite, unprepared into the unforgiving wilderness? So guys, just to be clear, the mystery of how these hikers died has never actually been solved, right? That is correct. Okay, so the lead investigator, Lev Ivanov, concluded that the hikers died because of an unknown compelling or overwhelming force. Whatever that means. Ultimately, the investigation ruled that the students died because they were unprepared and that a criminal conspiracy was just simply not supported by the evidence, despite the fact that the students had cuts and bruises on their knuckles mm -hmm. and a lot of them had experienced blunt force trauma to their skulls and their sides and some of them were missing particular organs like their tongue or their eyes. So with that in mind, what did the investigation actually find? The investigators closed the case just three weeks after they found the last bodies and they did not come up with much at all. As much as they offered any kind of explanation, they said that maybe an avalanche did it. There's also the idea that ultimately the hikers died of uh, something called hypothermia-induced paradoxical undressing, which is when you start taking off your clothes even though you're really cold, but the cold kind of makes you crazy. But of course, even that doesn't explain why they fled the tents in the first place. It doesn't explain a lot of things. It does not. And there's a bunch of other explanations that, you know, amateur theorists and sleuths have offered over the years. Uh, covert military tests was one of them. I think there were a bunch of others. Well, I heard, you know, some stuff like about like aliens, yetis, prisoners, murder, yes. KGB, yeah, radioactive right. experiments, a, a bomb, a bunch of stuff. Do we want to talk about which theories we think sound the most plausible? Yeah, I do, because my theory is the one that's right. Are you ready? Yes. I have yeah. one word for you. Let me get a pen and paper. Infrasound. Yep. Let that sink in. It's something called a Carmen Vortex. It's a very rare phenomenon. The topography of the region would make it such that the wind could gust through the Dyatlov Pass. So this creates a bunch of like mini tornadoes of wind. It creates a vibration within the human ear. It's almost like there's an earthquake inside your body. Even though you can't hear it, it can essentially drive you insane. How long does it drive you insane for? Oh, that's a good question. Like if the wind stopped, would the insanity stop? And then presumably they'd be able to gather their bearings and be like, oh crap, we should go back to camp now. Right. But judging by like how the bodies turned out, it doesn't seem like that actually happened. So like, what does this theory really involve? And like, why do you think this is the most plausible? Yeah. How does it account for the car accident-like injuries on their bodies. It's possible that, that the force of the wind could be so strong that it could cause physical damage as well as this kind of 
temporary insanity. They've studied this phenomenon in laboratory settings, and they have found that it can create uh, panic, nausea, and even, and this is the word they use, dread in people. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Man-made so, dread? Yeah. Don't no, want that. Well, we yeah, dread. Wind-made dread. It's uh, divine dread. Yeah. I like the idea that it was some natural phenomenon that none of the victims could comprehend at the time and that would even be hard for investigators to fathom later on. I mean, the Carmen Vortex is... I mean, it's kind of like a ghost, like it would happen and there would be little evidence that it had ever happened. I think it's interesting that you say it's a phenomenon that would have left no evidence because I think that this crime scene, it is a crime scene, is littered with evidence. The wind could have explained them, you know, fleeing the tent, going a little crazy and fleeing the tent unprepared, but it doesn't explain their extensive injuries and it doesn't explain why they were unable to come back to the tent. Well, were some of the injuries... Missing eyes, missing tongue, nose, bruises, yeah. uh, fractures. So my theory, which is obviously more plausible and better than John's, is mm-hmm. um, something that um, a lot of internet sleuths that are interested in the Dyatlov Pass incident or mystery is uh, what's called the drug theory. So some believe that, you know, these kids were like bright, you know, uh, researchers and, you know, they had kind of these obscure like side hustles that we're not really sure what they entailed but the insinuation is that they were involved in like some sort of like experimental drug testing um and so based on this theory it says that like they when they were up there they actually you know started uh testing it on themselves because the the, as the theory goes the drugs that they're testing were supposed to reduce susceptibility to cold but yeah i don't know why someone would be testing a drug in the middle of nowhere on a hike like this and not a controlled environment at well, all. I don't think that's, that's typically how drug testing goes. That's true. But also... These, I mean, this is Russia, so anything goes, but... This is true. And also, these kids were young, and maybe they were like, oh, well, you know, this is kind of as safe as we can get. It's all people we trust. It's a secluded area. Nobody was supposed to be there because it was high in the mountains. But that makes it even more unsafe. Why would you want to test an untested drug in a place where you had no one to account for you or help you if something I cannot control free will Leah so (laughs) I don't know why they did this but according to the drug theory basically like what happened was it went all awry which perhaps like you said which like you said may have not been the best idea and the side effects of the drug one of them is uh, believed to be uncontrollable aggression which might explain why they had these bruises that were consistent of people like you know fighting each other Mm -hmm. so maybe they you know went under the influence of these drugs they started you know getting aggressive with each other it's it's supposed to be a drug that helps you uh you know you know not be susceptible to the cold so, so if they did they get undressed etc cetera, etc cetera. they did get aggressive with each other i'm not sure that the weapons or the materials that would have made those bruises on them were ever found right like so one of the girls is found with a baton shaped bruise on her body if she got that from somebody in her group because they went crazy from taking pills where is that i don't know there's also the missing knife knife. right so it seems like there is a person unaccounted for who 
potentially has those tools, which is where my theory comes in that they were murdered. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, what, what is the evidence for that? Okay, well, my first thought is that they were murdered by somebody who knew them, who knew where they were, who knew what part of the trip they were on, was probably keeping track of their movements. Maybe it was even somebody who would die that night, like Zolotaryov. The guy no one wanted, who's the, 10 years older and has to be called by a fake guy name. Who, How has nobody looked into that the guy? The guy who one of the women literally said, like, oh, we didn't really want him to join. Exactly. But, but you can't They refuse. picked him up in the middle of the trip. They picked him up at, like, one of the stop houses they were on. So why, why did the investigators not look into that at all? It seems to me like there's a larger cover-up going on here, and Zolotaryov is involved with, I don't know, the KGB? If Zolotaryov was involved also, this would actually be then you're saying that it's a murder-suicide because he also died. Yeah, or he, died, he in his you know efforts of murdering them, they fought back pretty well for a certain amount of time until they all died. I wouldn't say they did it that you know effectively. No. They but at all least died. to the point where... Or whoever he was working for found out that he was botching it and came by and was like, screw it, I'm just going to kill all of you and cover our tracks. And then killed him to cover tie up tracks. loose ends. Yeah, totally. Okay, that sounds plausible. Murder is always on the table. There's also the idea that they were <laughs> murdered by prisoners in that, you know, in that jail in the Ural Mountains, but I don't know what prisoners break out of a prison in the dead of a Russian winter and not wait till say summer. And then if they do happen upon a group of hikers, why they didn't take their supplies. Like their also, supplies like, why are would still they there. also like, and why would they just kill these, them? These yeah. Kids. yeah. It seems to me like the, the panic begins in the tent. Everything starts in the tent and then fans out from there because the tent is destroyed. There's slashes in it. It looks like the slashes were made from the inside based on the investigation. So whatever happened probably began with some kind of altercation in the tent. I don't know. That's my feeling. Yeah, an altercation between humans and wind. (laughs) How does the wind account for the missing eyes and the missing tongue? And don't even tell me that it's from animals eating them because what animal eats so discriminately that it's like, "Mm, I'm only going to take the eyes and the tongue. I'm not going to go for the rest of this whole body. (laughs) Wind. And yes, it was animals. Jesus, of course it was animals. Remember we just did that story about cats eating corpses and the first things they ate were like the cheeks and the lips right they didn't even touch the eyes also if you look at the pictures like their organs are truly gone like there is no trace of eyeballs in that skull if you look at the pictures on the diablopass.com website it's 18 plus go it looks like they were just taken really meticulously which could not be done by some random wind i just don't know you're saying maybe they're trophies trophies. or they were torture i don't know taking trophies is a known trait of murderers yeah ted bundy took nips someone Hmm. in the kgb or wherever else took tongue and eyeballs wait so It's the KGB, or it's a serial killer, or it's Semyon. Or a killer working for the KGB that becomes a serial killer because of an infrasound wind. So it's more convoluted than that. They're all true. What if all of the theories are true? And and they just were like in a clusterfuck of a situation. The reason my theory works is because it's simple. Wind. How do people feel about the Yeti theory? 
Like the thought that these kids yes, looked like yeah, they were the just Yeti. getting slammed around, like maybe a giant Yeti was picking them up and just like throwing them around. Well, yeah, we like need to dolls. we need to the think Yeti. about that because like the you know the investigators found that they were tossed around by a force comparable to a car. Who was the one that was uh, the injuries were consistent with falling down a hill oh, over uh, and over? Slobodin? I believe. I think but, so. Like the, the clearly there was some force like, yeah, that was like tossing them around. That makes like me think dolls. of someone who hurt their head and had a concussion and was trying to get away. So they kept falling. You know what I mean? What like he already car? had hurt his head and then, well, the car hit him. The car like force hit him. He was able to come back enough to crawl away. But every time he stood up to walk away, he fell back down again. What is the car force? The Yeti. Oh, the Yeti. Yeah. Or, in this theory or the wind or an avalanche right but that's but the, what, what the avalanche said. just like randomly the avalanche theory for me i don't think that's plausible at all and it's very suspect that the government is really trying to push this theory there is an interview with one of the locals it, it's not a mancy uh, tribes person but i think this is like some sort of like local russian guide who he was being interviewed about like could it have been an avalanche he basically was like pointed at the sky around them and basically say do you see anywhere where an avalanche could have snowballed from from here that's like kind of bs the terrain wasn't really conducive to an avalanche no but oh, I knew it. No, I listen, just, I knew listen, it. Listen, I do even. Okay. I know where but you're going with the this. terrain was consistent with this wind pattern that I'm talking about. The topography of the Dyatlov Pass was such that the wind would come through in this howling way and it would drive you insane. Are there any examples of this howling wind having happened any other time in history? No comment. Well, there we go. <laughs> I'll Very find convincing. some. I'll find some. <laughs> Okay, fine. I feel like so that the, the KGB serial murderer trophy taker, I, I am that's not, the one? I am not espousing the serial killer theory, just a murder theory. The fact also that their bodies were tampered with after they died. Unless it was like the Mansi people walking by and they're like, ooh, I don't want to be involved in this. Which like I believe it. that theory like, is like we know for sure that's a lazy racist theory. Because oh, no, I'm Mansi not saying people- they killed them. I'm saying they came by after they were dead and they were like, oh, I don't want anything to do with this murder. That freaks me out. So maybe they messed with them to see how they died, but then walked away. I don't think they would. I don't think they would mess with them. I feel like the the first thing, if I saw like a bunch of dead bodies would not be to touch them. I guess we also know that that's not true because a Mansi man walking his dog reported it. Yeah. Why is the Mansi theory generally racist? Why is that your... Well, because I think the, the, the thing that, that happened was in the beginning of the investigation, first off, one of the Mansi people found it, which is, I think, for a lot of murder cases, like, okay, you found the body, you're, like, number one suspect. And then it was very convenient for investigators because the local Mansi tribes people happened to live around there. But the thing is, like, I don't think they would want to be, you know, disturbing these kids. The Mansi people are known to be like very like peaceful. They mind their business. During an interview, one of them actually talked to um, a Mansi woman, basically saying that like, why did people think that at first it was the Mansi people who did this? And she was basically saying like that. Yeah, I don't know why, like, because nobody would have been where those kids were at the time. The Mansi people are like native to that terrain. And so they know like when like the weather's gonna be terrible, like you shouldn't go there. Like she was basically saying like, nobody in their right mind would have been out there in that weather up on that mountain like those kids were. So 
I think it's definitely... So they shouldn't have been hiking mm-hmm. in that area in the you first place, is what you're like saying? You sound like the Soviet government, Natasha. Yeah. You're I, blaming their stupidity. We have a uh, oh, shoot. probe in here. Yeah, we have an asset <laughs> here, guys. Oh, shh. My, my cover has... Well, Although, if they were killed by someone in their group that was working for someone else, perhaps they were lured to go to that place in the first place. Do we know if any of those hikers had done that trail at that time before? I'm not sure, but they are definitely experienced hikers, which is to say that it wasn't because of their lack of preparedness. Well, as much as part of what you're saying sounds like you're a government asset, there is a theory or two or four or seven or whatever out there that the Soviet government was involved in this. Leah, you alluded to the KGB thing, but like there's other stuff where it's like, some of the wounds or something would be consistent with tactics used by Stalin's secret police or the special forces or something like that. Yeah, Duroshenko had, uh, he was found with a gray liquid coming from his open mouth, um, which is most consistent with someone who suffered from a pulmonary endema, which you can receive from someone pressing on your chest cavity for an extended period of time, which was a method used, an interrogation method used by Stalin's secret police force. Oh, wow. Could that also be caused by crazy drugs? (laughs) (laughs) Back to the drugs. Or could it be caused by wind? Oh, that's definitely not what caused it. Caused gray liquid to come out of him. I'm for any explanation that involves humans killing humans. I also wonder how long it took for all of them to die. Like, they clearly had enough time as they were all fleeing down mountain to go back to the friends that had died and take their clothes right. and put them on to stay warm. So for the presumably the last ones to die were the people found in the den because they made it the furthest away and had the yeah. most clothes on. Right. So I think that's one of the most like terrifying things right. about this case is they were also watching the fact their that friends get picked off one by one. Yeah, like it <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well no, but I mean it is yeah, it's really creepy that like Clearly, they... They were avoiding to yeah, go back. they did not want to return so badly that they took 20 below zero over going back. Right. Because of the KGB, yes. And I also have to wonder why the Yuris were trying so hard to climb that tree. Were they trying to get away from something on the ground? Were they trying to get a vantage point? Maybe they were turned around and couldn't find where the tent was. I'd like to know right. if there was like a blizzard that night or something. That had that rendered them with low visibility. Right. So they were trying to a get windy, windy blizzard. Honestly, John, I also don't understand why groups that get caught up in sketchy situations always decide to separate. Like, why did they separate? Right. It's the classic horror movie scenario. It, well, if they oh, were rendered, us. if they were in a flight, a fight or flight response type thing where they were just running for their lives, maybe they didn't have the time to organize and be like, everyone this way. They were just. Every so they ended up ended up like separate, like accidentally when everybody was just fleeing for their I lives. I just can't get over the cuts in the tent. Were they big enough for a human body to pass through? If there were multiple, it looked why like did it. they need yeah, to make multiple? They only had two knives with them. So were there just two people making rips in the tent for them to run? Right. And they were experienced hikers. So they know how to get out of a tent the Quickly, proper way. Right. right. But they cut their way out. Like a C-section baby. Like they were exactly. super panicked. Like a C-section baby, yes. <laughs> well, no, yeah, they, they must have been panicked if they decided to cut their way out of their tent. And they like destroyed it. When the investigator first found it, it was half torn down. I mean, it was mangled. So yeah, what forced them out of the tent like that? 
those kinds of bizarre circumstances where there is no clear explanation for a set of weird things that occur is exactly the kind of venue for all kinds of weird theories, including conspiracy theories, but not, not just conspiracy theories, sort of weird science and stuff like that. Conspiracy theories depend upon the existence of some shadowy power. Like a lot of cases that go unsolved, the Dyatlov Pass prompts speculation. This, of course, can snowball into countless conspiracy theories that attempt to explain what might have happened, even with little evidence to go on. But how does a simple hypothesis evolve into a full-blown conspiracy theory? And what can we learn from conspiracy theories anyway, if there's anything to learn from them at all? Mark Fenster, a researcher whose work revolves around the inner workings of conspiracy theories, clued us in. My name is Mark Fenster. I am a professor of law at the University of Florida, and I am the author of two books, uh, one called Conspiracy Theories, Secrecy and Power in American Culture, and the other is called The Transparency Fix, uh, which concerns government secrecy. My research is on how conspiracy theories operate in contemporary culture and politics. The longstanding approach to conspiracy theories dating back into the 20th century was was to see conspiracy theories as merely the paranoid expression of the margins of political and popular culture. But what has happened, and what really has always happened, but we've only now come to grips with that, is that conspiracy theories aren't marginal, that they are a part of uh, general politics, uh, and they have a long-standing role in popular culture. So you're saying that conspiracy theories are in fact not as fringe as some people might think. Right. Conspiracy theories are not as fringe as some people might think, and they are pervasive in politics. Anyone who is running for office will note the secrecy and corruption of their opponent uh, while their opponents do the same to them. And that is a perfectly legitimate argument to make. It is not necessarily a conspiracy theory, but when made really intensely, when it gets tied, for example, to someone's race uh, or when it gets tied to a particularly identified conception of the bad guys, it can start shading increasingly into conspiracy theories, which are simply a quite taut and efficient story that says all of politics are emanating from a particular secret group. And that is why our political system is so corrupt. How would you define what constitutes as a conspiracy theory? Like when does a simple hypothesis over a specific event, for example, cross over to become a conspiracy theory? Conspiracy theories are theories and as such aren't necessarily wrong. They could be empirically verified. Lots of different things that have been dismissed as conspiracy theories have been proven to be true. Uh, the existence of networks of white supremacists operating during the Jim Crow era in the South was clearly a conspiracy by uh, white elites in the southern states of the United States. The allegation that uh, secret American forces were operating in Latin America throughout the Cold War era was often dismissed as a conspiracy theory, but in fact was proven to be true. So they are a hypothesis uh, that uh, can sometimes be proven true, but oftentimes is so wild and speculative that 
it can't be proven true, uh, or that even if proven false, those who believe in it refuse to accept the empirical facts that seem to indicate that what they believe is false. Is there a way to profile a conspiracy theorist? Like you would say, you know, profile like a serial killer, maybe like, do they have certain tendencies or (laughs) traits that they often display or do they really kind of run the gamut? I think they they largely run the gamut. Uh, uh, Psychology literature tends to find that men are uh, more likely to be believers in conspiracy theories, but that is not necessarily the case. Uh, One of the interesting things about QAnon, one of the big conspiracy theories relating to the the Trump supporters believe in on the fringes of Trump support, uh, is that many of them seem to be women. Uh, When you see uh, pictures in a crowd at a Trump rally, uh, the people who are wearing QAnon t-shirts are often women, uh, which is an interesting phenomenon. Uh, And they're not just white, uh, even though the prototypical conspiracy theorist is a white man. Often uh, African-Americans, sometimes for very good reasons, are strong believers in conspiracy theories, given the existence of conspiracies to uh, keep them segregated uh, during the 20th century uh, and otherwise um, maintain some degree of uh, distance between the races and to uh, perpetuate uh, certain you know, dominant tendencies. There are you know you get your Alex Joneses of the world who at least on a performative, uh, basis seem to be true and utter believers whose beliefs whose beliefs uh, take over their lives. But for many people who are involved in or engaged in or simply consume conspiracy theories, they lead normal. Yeah, they often lead normal middle class lives and have professions. And on the side, they will spend time on their interest in conspiracy theories. You know, it becomes sort of like a hobby. And like some hobbies, for some people, it can become all encompassing. You've talked in other interviews before how skepticism is part of America's national identity. Yeah, so we are uh, we are a post-revolutionary country, uh, and a part of our post-revolutionary heritage that everyone, uh, whether they're in the North or the South or the East or the West, gets in their civics lessons in school is the idea that we threw off the chains of colonialism and we threw off a distant uh, a distant power uh, a a distant monarchy. Uh, in exchange for uh, a democracy that would represent us. Uh, And we have had cycles of populism that is like that sort of revolutionary belief that we need to take back control of our government. Uh, and cycles when it that that populist tendency becomes more obvious than at other times, uh, and we are in one now. I mean, the 2016 election had a great deal of populist energy going on in it in uh, both primaries uh, in 2016, and uh, after Bernie lost uh, in the general election with Donald Trump. And some of those populist tendencies get expressed as conspiracy theories and. With Trump, you've got a president who is probably not himself a conspiracy theorist. If you view conspiracy theorists as people who actually study and make uh, uh, make up or, or find conspiracy theories, he is more someone who has a tendency to think in that direction and enjoys amplifying them. Uh, but uh, indeed, it is part of our uh, political system that we have a real uh, tendency to suspect um, 
concentrations of power, whether those concentrations of power are in government or in private entities, whether rich people or corporations or the like. You've published two books on the subject. The first was Conspiracy Theories, Secrecy, and Power in American Culture, which published in 1999, and your most recent book, The Transparency Fix, Secrets, Leaks, and Uncontrollable Government Information, which was published in 2017. The Conspiracy Theories book, when I first wrote it in 1999, which was the first edition, I had a rosy picture of what we could do not to eradicate conspiracy theories, but to limit their influence and their scope. And that was, if only government were less secret, then we would have fewer people believing in conspiracy theories. I published a second edition of that book in 2008. And part of the intervening years, I had gone to law school and become a lawyer. Uh, And I also... I think I got a little bit more depressed about American democracy, and I came to the conclusion that, in fact, uh, secrecy, even if you could eradicate it, wouldn't necessarily get rid of uh, conspiracy theories in a large-scale mass democracy like ours. And I came to that conclusion in part after... Uh, the, um, the the success of the 9-11 truth movement in developing and promoting conspiracy theories about the 9-11 attacks and their response to the 9-11 commission, which was imperfect on a lot of measures, but was far superior to the Warren Commission, which had studied the John F. Kennedy assassination. The 9-11 commission really tried to grapple with how do we create a public record of this complex traumatic event uh, so that people will maybe not believe in conspiracy theories. And, uh, you know, what transpired in the aftermath of that, uh, particularly by 2006 and 2007, was a widespread belief in conspiracy theories and a real skepticism about the 9-11 Commission report that I I felt uh, exceeded the limitations of the report. Uh, And so I came to the conclusion as a result of that that we're not going to get rid of conspiracy theories uh, and that the the government has a difficult time responding to them. Uh, And yet we have in our uh, federal laws, as well as in many states, uh, laws that require government to disclose information. And so my second book, The Transparency Fix, was an attempt to look at that to see what the underpinnings of the desire for transparency is, how the laws are inevitably imperfect, Uh, and how the laws actually play out on the ground. The conclusion that I came to was that it is extremely difficult to make the state and to make really anything that is complex and large, which includes corporations, to make them transparent. And sometimes there are costs with attempting to do so. And we never fully reckon with the extent to which it is so difficult to make things transparent, uh, as well as the costs of trying to do so. So you're saying that we're stuck with conspiracy theories. We are stuck with conspiracy theories, which is, again, not all bad. I think the tendency to question power and authority is a good one uh, because it leads to uh, large-scale challenges of what the government is telling us uh, and what anyone in power is telling us, uh, which I think is a good thing. Uh, I think we should do it not only to government but to ourselves to to question our own beliefs, uh, to question the assumptions that we work from. Uh, And that sort of radical skepticism that conspiracy theories bring 
If it is tied to fact, uh, and if it is willing to concede uh, that the theory is merely a theory and merely a hypothesis, can actually have positive effects. So you recently gave a talk about your book, The Transparency Fix, at a conference held by the European Union on conspiracy theories. I honestly had no idea that these international consortiums on this topic even existed. It was a very interesting uh, conference to try to grapple with conspiracy theories as a phenomenon in Europe. Uh, and the really interesting aspects of it is the extent to which conspiracy theories operate in pretty much every European country, but they operate differently. Uh, because of the political culture within uh, that country, the country's size, uh, its relationship to other countries. Uh, and uh, the only way to really grapple with this and understand how that works is to compare, uh, to compare notes, to think about the underlying theoretical framework that you have in trying to study them, to bring people from different disciplines, bring all these different disciplines, including me, a little old lawyer, uh, in to think about uh, how best to study them. Do you have any thoughts on the Dyatlov Pass incident? Uh, it, uh, it is a, I don't want to say typical because that makes it seem as though I'm, I'm saying it's silly, which I'm not. But those kinds of bizarre circumstances uh, where there is no clear explanation for a set of weird things that occur is exactly the kind of venue for all kinds of weird theories, including conspiracy theories, but not, not just conspiracy theories, sort of weird science and stuff like that. Conspiracy theories depend upon the existence of some shadowy power. And uh, big government can do that of whatever form. But the Soviet government was especially good at that. I watched the first episode of the Chernobyl miniseries on a flight. Uh, and there's no conspiracy theory about that, but it was, the, it was rather the opposite of it because you saw it from the perspective of the government officials, which is in some ways what the transparency fix is about, that uh, oftentimes the effort to create secrets is in part a question of incompetence, uh, to cover up your own incompetence, in part it's corruption. Just in order to do your job, you need some degree of discretion and some degree of distance from the public. Uh, and you put all those things together and bad things happen and bad weird things happen and you do a terrible job of explaining it. That is exactly the kind of situation in which conspiracy theories can develop, where there may not be anything that the Soviet military did wrong here. There may be, but there may not be. But the uh, military had zero credibility in its uh, efforts to deny any bad acts that it might have engaged in here. Uh, and that's a problem with the government. It's not necessarily a problem that gets solved by transparency. Uh, we've got a fair bit of empirical work that demonstrates that transparency does not necessarily create trust. It can sometimes in some contexts, but the idea that if only we disclose things, people will trust us more uh, is in fact not really borne out in practice.
The Russian government reopened the investigation into the Dyatlov Pass incident in February 2019, claiming they wanted to stop the growth of rumors and establish the truth. However, they quickly determined that there was no criminal activity involved and that a freak occurrence must have been responsible. Crime is out of the question, said Alexander Kurinoy, the official representative of Russia's prosecutor general. There is not a single proof, even an indirect one, to favor this criminal version. It was either an avalanche, a snow slab, or a hurricane. Whether the government actually found nothing or just didn't try remains in contention. Either way, the results of the 2019 investigation are eerily similar to those of 1959, when investigators found that, quote, the cause of their demise was overwhelming force, which the hikers were not able to overcome. And so, after 60 years, we're officially right back where we started, and the mystery of the Dyatlov Pass incident remains just as puzzling as it ever was. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcasts at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.